you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn it to uh, James chapter 2. If you don't have one, we've got it uh, actually printed in our worship folder this morning. We're going to be reading James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And uh, would you please stand with me as we read God's... As we... Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that now you would come into this place and open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts, that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would see very clearly the words that you have for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, it reads like this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's inspired word for us. Uh, please be seated. Uh, so the title of our message this morning was almost uh, demonic faith. Um, you know, when else can you get a chance to use such a fun, provocative title uh, on the board out front of the church? But I thought that might send a little bit of mixed message. Um, so instead, we'll just talk about that could have been the title instead of it is the title. Um, and, and instead, our, our message this morning is entitled Deadly Faith. We're going to talk about demons, not very much, uh, so don't get too excited if, if that's uh, what you're after. Um, but our focus this morning is on true faith, which is deadly faith, which is almost as fun and not quite as uh, linguistically uh, flexible. Um, so we're going to look at three things this morning. First is that dead faith produces nothing. Second, real faith produces life. And then third, all faith is deadly. And we'll explain more about that when we get there. Okay, so first, dead faith produces nothing. And we, we can't talk about faith without first defining our terms. And we find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you might be familiar with this verse, a very helpful definition of what faith is. It reads like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is what? Assurance and conviction, certainty, belief in things that we can't 
see or fully observe with our senses. And so in a very real sense, you probably realize this already, all of us practice faith each and every day. And there was a great deal of faith that allowed you just to be here this morning. Right? It, it took faith that you could actually get out into your car and that when you turn the key, that it would start. It took faith that when you were driving along the road, or maybe it, even, it took even greater faith to ride along with somebody else that was driving, right? That the other cars would follow all the rules, that they would stop when the light turned red, that they would go when the light turned green, right? You, you had faith that they would stay within the lines. You had faith when you walked into this building that the architects who designed it knew what they were doing. That they didn't just kind of think, well, I think this piece goes here and this part goes over there, but that back in the day, and this is, you know, kind of a pretty old place, that they knew exactly what they were doing. Now, this is kind of a, a side note, but um, earlier this week, a few of us climbed up into the attic above the sanctuary. Okay, as you might imagine, there's some very old wood up there, like petrified beams and uh, some plywood that you can walk around on top of. And what was very amusing is that there's a bunch of cigarette butts up inside of the attic. Probably H.C. Blake guys, once upon a time, came. And, uh, so I won't talk about that. Um, you know, you, we had, they had great faith that their cigarettes wouldn't burn the building down. I'm glad that they did, that they were correct, right? It, it wasn't those guys. I'm sure it wasn't. So all of us have some amount of faith. If you didn't have a, a faith in your life, you would really be able to do nothing. Right, that you would sit at home, or maybe you'd sit outside because maybe your house would fall down. Right, we saw this week what happens when buildings aren't built the right way, or when big earthquakes happen, or car accidents happen. We see these things all the time, and yet we still operate by this belief in things that we can't know a hundred percent for sure. Maybe you're starting to rethink your faith of being in here, and that's that's okay. And James begins our passage with this rhetorical question, though. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, if you're a person that writes in your Bible or, or writes in the notes, uh, you know, circle the word that. Can that faith save him? Your, trans your translation might say, can such a faith save him? See, this is an adjective describing a certain kind or type of something. So what kind of faith is that faith? Well, that faith is a faith that lacks any type of accompanying action or response. That faith is a faith in name only. That faith is saying that you have faith without actually exercising it at all. And, and he's going to give us two illustrations of what that faith looks like. The first one that he uses is the illustration of seeing a brother or sister, so this is a member of your family, lying naked and starving and destitute on the road. Now, if you encountered this person on the street, a member of your family who literally has nothing and is about to die, and you tell them, I hope you get warm. I hope you're not hungry anymore. I'll see you tomorrow. And then say, you know, they should be warm and hungry because I told them that they should go be warm and hungry. See, how, how ludicrous is that? And, and, and what's worth noting is that James isn't saying this is what, like, real Christian faith looks like, okay? This isn't the measure of Christian faith is that we go around 
clothing all the naked people and feeding all the hungry people, although that can be a sign, right? That can be an outward sign of what having real faith looks like. But he's saying it's just as ludicrous to say you have faith in Jesus without actually doing anything that looks like you have faith in Jesus. It's just as ludicrous as telling a starving person, I hope you're not hungry anymore. What do those words do for that person? Can somebody say nothing? Right, nothing. This is not a rhetorical question. We know the answer, right? He, this is a very easy answer to this. Words don't fill a belly. Words don't put clothes on somebody. Sending good vibes to someone doesn't really change anything about their current situation, right? Like, don't send me good vibes. Like, send me a good check or maybe a good meal or a good blanket or something. So he's not saying that this is the way to faith by caring for these people and then you're going to have faith. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying it's just as ridiculous to say that speaking to that person without doing anything actually changes something for them. It changes nothing. So that kind of faith is a faith without any accompanying action. It's, it's a ridiculous faith. It's ridiculous to tell a naked person, don't be naked anymore, right? That faith is faith in name only. So according to the latest Barna survey on Christianity, American Christianity, 68% of everyone in the United States professes to be a Christian. He identifies themselves as a Christian. So almost 70% of all Americans would say, I'm a Christian, which is incredible, right? And, and then they start to look at what, what's really behind that number. And they say, well, of those... Only 25% of people who call themselves Christians, only 25% of that 65, 68%, so what are, there's a, sorry, I'm, I'm really bad with math. 25% of people are what they would call practicing Christians, and the rest, the, whatever the percentage is between 68 and 25, help me out, 43? Does that sound right? You guys are bad at math too for a bunch of engineers. Um, <laughs> 43% of people are what they would call non-practicing believers. Their definition of a practicing Christian is somebody who's gone to church once in the last month and someone who says that faith is very important to them along with calling themselves a Christian. Right, so over two-thirds of people who call themselves Christians would be what we would call non-practicing Christians. So the, that faith is a faith that just checks the box that says Christian. That faith is a faith that says I'm a Christian because I was born in the South or I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians or I'm a Christian because I was American or I'm a Christian because I was raised in the church, right? That's what that faith is. That is a faith in name only. But as you probably know, calling myself a Christian doesn't actually make it so, right? Sitting in the pew at a church doesn't make me a Christian, because my parents were Christians doesn't make me a Christian. And even saying the words, this is interesting, I believe in God, doesn't make me a Christian. James says that the demons believe in one God. Isn't that interesting that demons are monotheists? And that there's a lot of demons that have better theology than a lot of Christians? It's kind of incredible. You know, Satan could pass an orthodoxy exam to become a minister, except for this whole tricky thing about actually having real faith, 
right? So there's this difference between head knowledge and intellectual um, ideas and trust. See, that faith is only a verbal agreement. James began by saying, if anyone says, I have faith, not if anyone has faith. So this is knowledge without conviction. John Calvin writes, we don't attain salvation by a frigid and bare knowledge of God, which all confess to be most true. See, John Calvin would write that your theology cannot save you because even demons can have better theology than us. See, that faith is a dead faith. It's a demonic faith. It produces nothing, and nothing just means, what, not a thing, right? There's not, not a single thing it produces, and that faith is powerless to save. That's what James is saying. So secondly, real faith produces real life. This probably makes a lot of sense, right? Real faith produces real life. So James starts off by saying, show me your faith apart from your works, verse 18, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, at the beginning of our study of James, we tried to make it pretty clear that, that what James is not saying in this book is that your righteous works will save you. Okay? He's, he's not giving us that idea. He's not saying you have to be really good and you have to try really hard so that God can save you because you were a good person. That's, that's not what the Bible says, and that's not at all what James says, although as we read it, it almost sounds as if that's exactly what he says. But instead, he's giving us a picture of what, it, what the Christian life looks like once we have been transformed by the work of Jesus. This is the way of following Jesus after we've trusted in him. It's what we do once we've already been loved by him and saved by him. And the scripture is very clear. Acts chapter 16 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans chapter 10 says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right? Confess with your mouth that what? Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's what the Bible says. James isn't going against any other thing in scripture here. So what he's not saying and what we're not arguing is that our good work produces real faith. But it's in fact just the opposite. See, faith is the cause and works are the effect the followers of Jesus are working from their saving faith, and they're not working trying to get a saving faith. And so, the, so faith and works are never at odds with one another. In fact, it's kind of interesting that Martin Luther, who had like the biggest problem with the book of James, because he thought that's exactly what it was saying. Like he couldn't read this book and say, it's just telling me I need to be a good person, right? It's just giving me a list of rules. This is what I've got to do. I can't do this. I can't, I can't reconcile this with what the Christian faith looks like in the rest of the Bible, especially in the book of Romans. And yet this is how Martin Luther introduces the book of Romans in his commentary. He writes, oh, it is by living, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It doesn't ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks after about faith and good works and neither knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. You know, so, so Luther actually in his introduction to another book of the Bible, really affirms exactly what James is saying. 
He, he doesn't seem to put it together at the same time. So it's, that's kind of interesting. So James isn't contradicting the gospel at all. In fact, he's actually sounding a little bit like his older brother, which was who? Jesus. If you have a Bible, I just invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We're just going to look at a few verses here. This is a, the parable of the two sons. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. This is Jesus talking. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son... Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not. Which of the two did the will of his father? Who did what the father wanted? The one who said, yes, I will, and didn't do it. Or the one who said, no, I won't, but did do it? Did the one who did it, do it? <laughs> I think so. Right? Did the words matter at all? Didn't change what they did. So James sounds a lot like Jesus. Who does what the Father asks of them? What's well, the one who does it, Right? Real faith brings real life and real works. Just like real seeds produce real plants, which produce real fruit. You might say, show me your garden by your fruits and not by your plants. We planted some tomatoes last year that produced no tomatoes. I do not call those tomato plants. I just call them vines. They grew nothing. Maybe it wasn't tomatoes. I have no idea. Right? That's not a tomato plant. A tomato plant produces tomatoes. Just like neither water nor fire turn dirt into gold, they reveal the precious metal that is already inside, so our works do not give us salvation that we do not already have. Our works reveal the validity and the reality of our faith. See, real faith produces real life. Okay, and third and finally, all faith is deadly faith. See, I can have that faith which produces nothing, or I can have real faith in a real Christ which produces real life, but that faith also requires that I die to myself in order to be made alive in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, James gives us actually two rather striking Old Testament examples of this deadly faith. We can call them the patriarch and the prostitute. Okay, in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, again, we read this phrase, justified by works, and we're saying, isn't that saying the exact thing that we're saying it doesn't say? Okay, but, but John Calvin writes that the word justified can have two meanings, right? One is this um, being declared righteous 
by God at the moment of salvation. So being imputed the righteousness, being given the righteousness of Christ Jesus, that's what it can mean to be justified. But there's this other way that we can use the term justified, which is the manifestation of righteousness. Essentially, justification is, is received by faith at the moment of our salvation, receiving God's work for us, but then it's revealed by Christ's work in and through us. Like, like you can tell me that you're rich and show me because you showed me your bank statement, but showing me the bank statement wasn't the thing that made you rich, right? It's what you had in the bank before you showed it to me. If you didn't show it to me, guess what? You're still rich, maybe. Maybe you don't have any money, I don't know, right? But that's just a revelation of what is already there. So if you don't know the whole story of Abraham, um, way back in Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham, who was then known as Abram, and, and, and for no apparent reason at all, God shows up and picks him and says, I'm going to turn you into a great nation and bless all the nations of the earth through you. It's not because Abraham was a man of great morals. It's not because he had uh, great wealth. In fact, what we find out is that Abraham, there's, there's this issue with him is that he's got no land, he's got no money, and he's got no kids. Try to make a nation out of those three things, right? You're going to become a, a nation that all the, the nations are going to be blessed through, but you have nothing. But it says that Abraham believed God, and then God starts to go to work in Abraham's life, and through these crazy series of events, you know, go, go read uh, Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the book, and you'll, and you'll see how God actually starts to bring about the things that he's promised for Abraham. We see that Abraham's faith then leads him to a mountain with the assurance that he's going to provide for him. So, so God provides this child for Abraham, Isaac. We're going to forget the fact that Abraham already provided his own child for himself through his wife's mistress, but that's a whole different story, right? So Abraham's faith had been tested over the course of time, and he'd been found wanting. And now God has given him this child, and Abraham's temptation is that he's going to place all of his identity, all of his value, all of his significance in who? His son and not his God. And so God invites him to a mountain and says, you're going to offer your son to me. Abraham doesn't complain. He doesn't bicker. He doesn't try to barter with God and say, hey, God, I think you've got this backwards. This is the child you promised me. I don't think you know what you're doing. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, we see that, that Abraham actually had this faith that even if he killed Isaac, that God could raise him back from the dead for him. See, God wasn't just interested in Abraham's actions. He was interested in his heart. God needed Abraham to see that his significance, his identity, his value was in him, was in the giver and not the gifts that the giver gave. Why is Abraham sacrificing his son? Why is he tying all of his hopes and dreams on the altar of God? Is so that he can find that his true identity is, as James says, is now the friend of God. Example two, we have Rahab's faith, and this is almost the exact opposite of Abraham. Not only was she a woman, that was strike one. She was a pagan Gentile, which was strike two, and she was a very public sinner, which means strike three, and you're what? You're out. Yet this is a woman that God puts in the lineage of his one and only son, Jesus. 
Everyone in Jericho knew who Rahab was and what she did for a living. And so when these two Israelite spies show up and they start walking around these two foreigners, they know exactly whose house they're going to wind up in. So God sends spies into the land. They're going to scout out the promised land because he's going to give this to them to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham way back when, hundreds of years before. They come to Abraham's, or they come to Rahab's house. Rahab takes these men on her roof and she hides them because she has faith in their God. She heard beforehand about how God had been working in the world. She had heard what God had done to the Egyptians. She knew that he was not just any other God. Right? Jericho had gods already. Every nation, every city, every town in this land had their own gods, and yet Rahab's faith is in the one true God. She declared in Joshua 2 that he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. But, but Rahab offered more than just a profession of faith. She offered more than just a mental assent to the fact that this was a real God. She put her money where her mouth was and her actions revealed the significance of her faith. See, deadly faith is the faith that that bids us to come to Christ and to bury our old identity and to find a new identity in him. So we just observed the sacrament of baptism this morning with, with Ren and, and Johnny. Is Johnny still here? Johnny's still here. Okay. Where they showed us that the way to life is through death. See, once they were dead in their sins, and now they're alive in Christ Jesus. But baptism isn't the thing that saved Bryn and Johnny. Right? There was no, nothing special, I don't think, in the water that Randy used and sprinkled on their forehead. Usually we just get it out of the, um, the sink. The good, the good sink, right? But it symbolizes that they trust in Jesus and that they have died to themselves and taken on his righteousness and not their own. I know Bryn pretty well. I know Johnny fairly well. Um, they're good kids. They're not that good. Okay? They aren't good enough to earn their way to Jesus. And the, the reality is that they know that. Right? That's why they're here this morning. See, whatever goodness you see from them is actually a sign that God is working in their life right now. And so that's the call. And it's the same for all of us today. And Jesus says, come and, and, and take on this deadly faith. Right, Die to yourself, place your faith in me, and experience this new life that only I can give you, that can only be found in me, and show the world that I am good. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we're not good, but you are. Lord, we bring to you a whole lot of um, sin and, and despair a lot of frustration. Lord, it can often be confusing because even after we come to faith in you, Jesus, uh, our sin might even look like it gets worse instead of getting better. And yet, Lord, the good thing is that you have not asked us to earn our way towards you. Lord, you said, I will do the work. So trust in me. You say, I don't want just a part of you or just a piece of you, but I want all of you to love me with everything that you have because that's how much I've loved you. Lord, we thank you for this great reminder this morning. We ask that you would 
continue to do your work in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.